I'd like you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 6. And while you're turning, I want to ask this question. Um, How many of you have ever started a project that you didn't finish? Show of hands. Okay. Thank you. I'm so glad that you guys, uh, that I'm not the only one. But isn't it interesting how that can happen to us, right? We get inspired about something. We get this great idea. You get motivated. But somewhere down the line, something happens and you stopped. And you have this project at your house or this project in your life that is just left undone. I've got a few book projects that are undone right now and um, some projects at home that are undone. And sometimes that can happen in our lives spiritually as well, where things get left undone. And I think somewhere along the line, if you have a project in your life, something that you started that is left undone, somewhere along the line, you might have become discouraged. And you might have found yourself thinking, you know, this project is a lot bigger than I thought it was going to be. And once you got into it, you maybe felt overwhelmed and the thought popped into your mind, I'm never, ever going to finish this. Now, that's where we saw the people of Israel in Nehemiah chapter 4. You remember if you were with us in Nehemiah chapter 4, the tribe of Judah, the leaders, the strong ones, well, they got discouraged. Remember what they said? Who remembers what they said? There was too much what? Rubbish. There was too much rubbish. This is overwhelming for us. And when leaders get discouraged, it has a way of affecting everyone else. And remember the answer that Nehemiah gave to them? It was to get their eyes off of the rubbish and onto the Lord. We might put it another way of getting your eyes off of the greatness of the task and onto the greatness of your God, right? How many of we need to hear that tonight? That, you know, get our eyes off of the greatness of the task and and onto the greatness of our God. So that was Nehemiah chapter 4. And so discouragement is one of those things that has most likely affected all of us in not finishing a project. Another reason why, though, that oftentimes it happens where we don't finish a project is because of division. That, that you start something and a group of people, it might even be the, the people in your own family, it might even be your wife, <laughs> who, who gets, you know, like there's a division in the way that you're approaching this. I remember a time with my kids where I thought the, it was going to be the greatest idea to get my kids together and we were going to clean up the yard together. What a disaster. And my kids start going, and one of them's like, you know, he's, he's not doing enough, and this. And they start bickering, and, and saying this great plan, the family's going to do this thing together. It was like, just forget it. I'll do it by myself, you know. I've had times with my wife where we start a project. And it seems like every time we do, we, we start fighting. Yes, your pastor and his wife, we do fight. But you know, one of the reasons why that happens is because we both think that we know the best approach and the best thing to do. How many of you know what I'm talking about? You know, when, when you get into that with, with, with your wife. Well, this happens also with 
Nehemiah. We saw that last week in chapter 5. The, the distraction was that of division. And if you missed last week, I want to encourage you to get the go online and listen to that because I think there were some really, really good things for us to draw from in that study. So discouragement and division are two things that can keep a project from getting finished. But I think the biggest reason why projects remain unfinished is because of distraction. We get distracted from the work, and so we get pulled away from it, and we never get back to it. And that also can happen in our lives spiritually. And as we come to Nehemiah chapter 6, this is the issue facing Nehemiah. And the tactic that the enemy uses here in chapter 6 is that of distraction. And it comes at Nehemiah in three different forms. There's isolation, there's insinuation, and there's intimidation. And we're going to see that tonight as we go through this. And in each case, the enemy was trying to distract Nehemiah from finishing the work of building the wall. So let's begin here in verse 1 of chapter 6. It says, Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there were no breaks left in it, though at that time I had not hung the doors in the gates, that Sandalit and Geshem sent to me saying, come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me harm. So I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? But they sent this message to me four times. Do you guys know that the enemy is relentless? The enemy never, ever backs down four times. And I answered them in the same manner. Pause right there and give me your attention. So at this point, we're told that the walls are actually done. The wall of the city has been built and there's no breaks in it. They've done a fantastic job. But the last thing to happen is to the hanging of the gates. And this was still a massive job because the gates were huge. They were these big, sturdy structures and there were 10 of them. So here we see the enemy's first tactic is trying to get Nehemiah distracted by saying, hey, let's meet together. Let's, let's, let's get together. Let's, let's talk about this. And so what they're seeking to do is to pull Nehemiah away and have him come down by himself. So this is the tactic of isolation. Come down to the plain of Ono. Now this, the plain of Ono was a kind of a neutral area. It was a beautiful area, 20 miles from Jerusalem and near Samaria, which is where Sanballat was from. That was Sanballat's home. Now in each of these situations, we're going to see where Nehemiah doesn't get distracted. He does something. And this is what we want to kind of pull in tonight and learn from Nehemiah in dealing with distraction. And the first thing that we do that we see here is that he has discernment about what they're really, really asking. Discernment is the ability to judge matters according to God's view of them and not according to their outward appearance. Remember when Samuel was 
chosen by God to be the prophet. And God had him go down to the, the city of Bethlehem to the house of Jesse. And he told them, I'm going to, I'm going to anoint. I want to have you anoint one of Jesse's sons to be the next king in Israel. Actually, he didn't tell him to anoint. He's going to be the next king. He just said, I want you to go and anoint one of his sons. And remember the first son, Eliab comes and he's this big strapping guy. I mean, he just, you know, his head and shoulders above everybody else. And he's just a good looking guy. And, and, and Nehemiah takes, or excuse me, Samuel takes one look at him and he's like, great choice, God. This guy's going to make a great leader. And God says, he's not the one. And then he says, Here's, don't, realize this, Samuel, God looks on the outward appearance, but man, or excuse me, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And that was an issue there. It was the discernment. He was wanting, wanting Samuel to realize the discerning. He's not the one. The one that I'm choosing is a different one, and he's going to be a man after my own heart. And it ends up being the scrawniest one, the youngest one, David, where everybody else saw a little boy, but God saw something radically different. He saw a man who was after his own heart. Well, Nehemiah here discerns the real motive and the intent of their invite. Notice verse 2, he says, they want to do me harm. He recognizes, okay, this, this isn't a real invitation. They want to do me harm. And maybe it was the fact that they were asking him to come and meet in the plain of Oh no. And maybe Nehemiah was thinking, oh no, to oh no. You know, I don't think I should go down there. It's kind of like when, when, you know, the, when somebody says, you know, hey, you want to do some dope. Let's do some dope together. You ever looked up the definition of dope? It's a stupid person. Okay. <laughs> so it's kind of like, okay, that dope, that's discernment. Dope, that's stupid. You know, it's a, okay, bad joke. But anyway, um, you know, it's that discerning. It's that discerning of, of him realizing that, hey, they wanted to do me harm. So Nehemiah discerns why they were trying to isolate him, why they were wanting to get him by himself. It was so that they could hurt him. And listen, the enemy seeks to do the same thing to us. Do you realize this, that the enemy loves to isolate men? It's one of his biggest tactics. He loves to get us walking on our own. In fact, you guys are going to talk about that a little bit in your groups tonight. Very, very important strategy. He loves to do that. He loves to pull us and get us to think that we can do it by ourselves. But you know, that's why the book of Hebrews says to us, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, it says, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. So you can't, you have to be around each other to stir up each other, to consider one another. Let us consider one another to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. It's the manner, it's the tendency of some to think, you know, I don't need fellowship. I don't need to be around other guys. I don't need to go to church. I, I can do this by myself, especially in this stage. I'll watch online. You know, there, there's that mentality. But the Bible says not forsaking 
ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. What day is he talking about there? He's talking about the day of the Lord. He's talking about the coming again of the Lord. And as we're living in the day and age in which we're living, that we're just seeing all you know, the craziness happening in our world. And our world is just becoming more and more godless and more and more hostile against the things of God. And all of that is an indication of what the Bible tells us would be happening happening in the last days. So we realize, okay, we're living in that time frame that the Lord could come back at any moment. This is a time not for us to be isolating ourselves, but to be stirring each other up, to be getting together and realizing the need we have for community, the the need we have to engage. And I've been hearing from all the group leaders just about how honest you guys have been being in your groups and I want to commend you guys for that. I want to commend you guys for being here. I want to commend you guys for for just committing to this time and allowing. That's what these groups are for is so that as we're talking and sharing it could be a time where we're stirring up one another. As one guy hears, you know what, I went through that before or I'm going through that right now and somebody else can encourage him. Guys, we need that. Don't isolate yourself from fellowship. You know, I've heard, know you, most of you probably have heard this analogy before, but it's a good one that, you know, a Christian is like a coal. You know, most of us, we, we use, don't use coals anymore when we're barbecuing. But in the old days, when we would get the bag of, you know, charcoal and we'd put it in, put the lighter fluid on it and light it up. And, and what would you have to do? You'd have to stir up those coals, But the minute you take one of those coals and you take it out of the group and out of the fire and put it by itself, what happens? It's it's fire, it's heat, it goes out. No, we need to be together in the fire and stirring up one another. And it's so vitally important that we do that. But not just fellowship. He doesn't seek to just isolate us from fellowship. But he seeks to isolate us in other areas as well. And you know, it's very, very important that we be wise in these things. You know, when I travel, I never, ever travel alone. If my wife can't go with me, I always take one of the brothers here at the church, one of the guys on staff or one of the elders with me, especially if I'm going somewhere where I'm going to be staying in a hotel And the reason why I do that is not because, you know, I have any kind of addiction or something like that that I'm struggling with, but I just want to be wise to not put myself in any kind of a position to be tempted. It gives my wife a great sense of of, um, peace in knowing that I'm doing that. And that's a sacrifice that, that we have chosen to make, you know, when I travel. The only time I don't do that is if I'm going somewhere where, you know, I'm going to be, you know, flying somewhere. Another pastor's picking me up and he and I are going to be together, you know, that whole time that we're together. But most of the time... I do that. It's, it's one of those things. I don't want to isolate. I don't want to put myself in a place where I could be tempted or you know anything like that. So it's very, very important, I think. Note the enemy also here, as I mentioned, was persistent. This invitation came four times. And each time, Nehemiah rejected the invitation. And verse 3 is key. I want you to catch this. He says, so I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work, so I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? 
Nehemiah realized that he was involved in a great work. That what he was doing, he was building walls, uh, the walls around Jerusalem. It was a great work from God. Do you know, guys, whatever it is that God has called you to right now in your life, and all of us have a calling, all of us are building something that God has called us to. Whether you're a grandpa pouring into your grandkids, whether you are you know, working somewhere in a, in a place and that's your mission field, whether it's you're a, a, a dad here with young kids and that's your focus as you're, you're pouring into your kids and trying to raise them. Whatever it is that God has called you to right now in your life, it is a great work because it's what God has called you to. It's a great work. And you need to realize that. You need to see that. There was a missionary in China whose abilities were just outstanding. He was just a really, really gifted guy. So much so that an American company had heard about him and tried to hire him. And they offered him this very, very attractive job and a salary to go along with it. And he turned it down. He told them that God had sent him to China to be a missionary. Well, they they thought that, okay, we're just going to make him a better deal. We're just going to offer him an even bigger sum of money. They really wanted this guy on their team. And he turned that down too. And this is what he said to them. After they gave him this just incredible package in this offer, he said, it's not your salary that's too little. It's the job that's too small. And I want you to hear me in this. Because no matter what it is that you're doing, what God has called you to, anything else that would be other than what has God called you to right now is too small. It's too small. What God has called you to is the great work that he has put before you. Nehemiah knew that he was involved in a great work, this monumental task for the Lord. And so again, I want to ask you, how do you view what you have been called to do right now. How do you do view it? You know, sometimes I'll go and minister with, you know, different pastors in different places. And, and you know, in the average Calvary Chapel in the United States, a lot of people don't realize this because we have so many big ones here in um, California, but the average is like 150 people. I was just yesterday at a pastor's conference and, and, you know, sometimes the, these guys can go to a conference like that and they, you know, are hearing from these speakers. And most of the time, the guys that are, that are speaking are all guys that have really big, big churches. And, and they can think, you know, gosh, I'm just, I'm a nobody. You know, my church is only 100 people. And, and that is just a lie from the pit of hell because they're doing a great work. The Bible tells us to not despise the days of small things. And God's the one that gives increase. And so it's, it doesn't matter. It's what has he called you to in your life right now? That is a great work. And so Nehemiah recognizes that. He sees that this is a great work that God has called him to. It reminds me of a story. I love this story about um, three guys that were laying bricks on a job site. And this little boy came up and he asked the first guy, he said, hey, what are you doing? And, and the guy was like, you know, just an old kind of crotchety guy. And he was like, what does it look like I'm doing? I'm laying bricks. 
And he went up to the second guy and asked the same question. And he said, hey, what are you doing? And the second guy said, well, I'm, I'm building a building. Well, the building that they were building was a church. And he went to the third guy and he asked, he said, hey, what, what are you doing? And he says, I'm building a cathedral where people are going to come and worship the great and living God. Now, let me ask you this question. Which one of those guys do you think was most excited about what he was doing and motivated to finish? Obviously, the last guy. Again, how do you see what you are doing? If you're doing what God has called you to do, it is a great, great work. So Nehemiah knew that he was involved in a great work. So the first thing, the first um, distraction that comes is, is the one of isolation. They tried to pull him away, and he discerned that. That's how he dealt with that. And he discerned that God had called him to a great work. The second distraction was insinuation. Look at verse 5. It says, Then Sanballat sent his servant to me as before, the fifth time now, with an open letter in his hand, and in it was written... It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Remember, Persia's over all of this, this area right now. Therefore, according to these rumors, you are rebuilding the wall that you may be their king. And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying, there is a king in Judah. Now, these matters will be reported to the king. Now, this is talking about the king of Persia, King Artaxerxes. So come, therefore, and let us consult together. Let's talk about this. And then I sent to him, saying, no such thing as you say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart. For they are all trying to make us afraid, saying their hands will be weakened in the work, and it will not be done. Now, therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. So here's what happens. A messenger shows up. He comes on the job site. So kind of picture this. You're, we're all on a construction site, and we're all working. we got our hat hearts on. And, and this guy comes, and he has this open letter. An open letter was one that was read out loud to everyone. So he's like, hear ye, hear ye. Everybody gather around. I have a, a special an- announcement to make. And there's two key phrases in this. It says that in verse 6, it's reported among the nations... And then the second one is, therefore, according to these rumors. This is pure insinuation that's happening here. The rumor being reported was, hear ye, hear ye, Nehemiah wants to be the king over Jerusalem and Israel. And this is what, why he's so eager to get these walls built. He wants to start his own kingdom And the big deal about this is because if King Artaxerxes heard this and believed it, it could cost Nehemiah his head. So this was a big deal. This wasn't just a a little insinuation that was happening here. This was a big deal that could risk him his life. But this is another distraction from the enemy. The enemy wants to get Nehemiah sidetracked by trying to get him to defend himself. So now he's not building anymore. He's not giving direction. Now he's caught up in all these squabbles about, you know, what's being said about him. And he's being pulled away from the work. But here's what we need to understand about rumors. 
Rumors never have a source. Notice it says it's reported among the nations. It's not so-and-so said this, or hey, this has come officially from. No, 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 it's like, there's a lot of people talking about this. That's kind of the idea here. And number two, a rumor is noted for its exaggerations. You know, sometimes someone will come to me and say, hey, I've heard a lot of people complaining about such and such. And I've learned to say, how many is a lot? Well, like how many are we talking about here? 10, 20, 30, 100? Like really, tell me. Tell me the people that you've heard this from. Well, my wife, my friend, there's, there's like four of us. You know what I mean? Sometimes it's like that ridiculous. Like really, you know? But I, I can't tell you how many times it's been like, oh, a lot of people are concerned. Okay, really, what's a lot? Let's talk about this. Like I really, I want to know. Like who are you talking to? Well, there's three of us, you know? And rumors though, they spread an exaggerated fashion. Remember that game? You guys ever play a game telephone, you know, where you tell someone something and then they tell someone something. So it starts off with, you know, hey, we need to pray for Susie. She's having surgery tomorrow. And it goes to the next person. And it's like, hey, we need to pray for Susie because she's having brain surgery tomorrow. And then it goes to the next person. We need to pray for Susie because she has cancer. And then it goes to the next person. We need to pray for Susie because the doctor says she only has two months to live. And that's how it goes. I mean, it just gets exaggerated. It grows like that. So this rumor was meant to hurt Nehemiah and make him afraid and, and weaken their resolve. And I want you to note that if you are in any form of leadership, be it in your job, be it in the church, be it in some group, you're going to have a target on your back. It just comes with the territory. And people will watch you. They'll pay attention to you. They're going to pay attention to what you do and what you say and how you act. It's, it's you know, being, being a leader means your life is in a fishbowl. I always tell that about guys who say, hey, I want to be a pastor. I was like, okay, understand this. Your life is going to be in a fishbowl. You're going to get watched. That's part of the, the calling. So how does Nehemiah deal with this attack, the rumor? How does he deal with it? The answer is he doesn't. He ignores it. Because he knows the accusations are not true. He knows that this is not his heart. He knows that this is not his plan. He knows that this is not what he is doing. So Nehemiah did not mount some elaborate defense in trying to prove Sanballat wrong point by point. He wasn't going to waste his time on that. He wasn't going to satisfy men like Sanballat with facts and explanations and evidence and, and say, you know, what about this? He doesn't do that. He says, because you can't satisfy people like that. You can't. So Nehemiah just says, You're, this isn't true. You're lying. That's not my heart. And I trust that the people know that. And so he ignores it and he prays to God. He says, now therefore, God, oh God, strengthen my hands. And I'll tell you, this is the best thing that you can do when insinuations are coming against you is let God be your defense. Don't try to defend yourself. Just let God be your defense. You stand on what you know to be true. You stand on what you know that the people around you who know you well know. You stand on what you know that God knows about you. And you trust that over time, that's going to be revealed. That that's going to be true. 
So Nehemiah was wise enough to not get distracted by the insinuation. He ignores them. So we see, first of all, there's a distraction of isolation. They're trying to pull him away. There's the distraction of insinuation. They're trying to get him caught up in, in this squabble. The third distraction is intimidation. Look at verse 10. Afterward, I came to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Methetubal, who was a secret informer. And he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us uh, close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. Indeed, at night they will come to kill you. So Shemaiah, who was probably in the priestly line and probably a confidant of Nehemiah, he takes now his turn. Trying to get to set up Nehemiah to run to the temple. Hey, come into the temple. We'll close the doors. We'll hide you there. Notice Nehemiah's response, verse 11. And I said, should, should such a man as I flee, and who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Nehemiah rejects Shemaiah's proposal because he knew that it was contrary to the law of Moses. You see, it was forbidden for a layman to go beyond the altar of the burnt offering there in the temple. And Nehemiah 18, uh, Numbers, excuse me, Numbers 18, 17 says, the outsider who comes near shall be put to death. Remember in 2 Chronicles 26 when King Uzziah decided he wanted to be the priest, go into the temple, offer sacrifice. Remember what happened to him? He got struck with leprosy. So this was something that God took very, very seriously. And so at this point, Nehemiah realizes, okay, this something's wrong here. This guy's in the priestly line, and he, he's contradicting God's word. Shemaiah shouldn't be contradicting God's word. So we see, how does he deal with this one? He stands on the word of God. Notice verse 12. Then I perceived that God had not sent him. Here's his discernment again at all. But that he pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. Listen, anytime somebody has a word for you that does not line up with scripture, reject it. It's not of the Lord. Anytime somebody wants you to do something, he says, thus says the Lord, I think this is the Lord. Or God told me, God told me this. And it doesn't line up with the word of God. Reject that. We stand upon the word of God. The word of God is our playbook. The word of God is our guide. The Bible says that God holds his word above his name. Notice verse 13. For this reason he was hired that I should be afraid and act that way and sin. See, Nehemiah knows this would be a sin. So that they might have cause for evil report and that they might reproach me. And then he prays again. How many times have we seen him pray here? We've seen him pray three times in this chapter. That every time he's, he's dealing with the situation, he deals with it according to the word, he's ignoring it, he pray, but he, every single time he's coming to the Lord, my God, remember Tobiah and Sambai according to their works and the prophecies, uh, Nobadiah or Nodiah, and the rest of the prophets who have made me afraid. And I like this because he's telling us here, like when people are coming against you and they want to intimidate you, you know, our human reaction, we are human. He's afraid. 
But he's not letting his emotions dictate how he's going to respond, which is so incredibly key, guys. We can't be ruled by our emotions. That's one of the biggest things I think we've seen here in our whole study of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a guy who was not ruled by his emotions. Remember in one of the very first studies we talked about that, that as we're growing in the Lord, we need to be learning what it looks like and what it means for us to respond to the Holy Spirit. And we learn how to wait, we learn how to respond, we learn how to be led by the Holy Spirit instead of reacting in our flesh. Because Paul the Apostle said that, you know, we're in this spiritual battle and it's a choice between walking in the Spirit or walking according to our flesh. Nehemiah has been a great example of a man who's going to walk in the Spirit because at every step of the way, we've seen it over and over again, his first response is to go to prayer. Take it to prayer. And we see that he does this here. He rejected their proposal because he clung to the word. Let's wrap this up. Verse six, verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elu in 52 days. It was a miracle. 52 days they finished that project. And it happened when all of our enemies heard it and all the nations around us saw these things that they were very disheartened in their own eyes for they perceived that the work was done by our God. And so this is a cause here for great celebration. What God has done, they finished the work and Nehemiah recognizes here the enemy is disheartened. And, and so... We, we would think that chapter 6 would end at a point where it's like, okay, we're done, let's kick back. Let's relax. But that's not what happens here. The chapter doesn't end that way. And I think the reason is because it's a reminder to us, the way this chapter ends is that the enemy never stops. So we never, ever can drop our guard. Let's see how this ends. Verse 17, also in those days... The nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and the letters of Tobiah came to them. For many in Judah were pledged to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, and his son, Yohanan, had married the daughter of Meshalam, the son of Becariah. And also they reported his good deeds before me and reported my works to him. And Tobiah, notice how this ends, sent letters to frighten me. He doesn't stop. The enemy's relentless. And so guys, we need to realize in the, when we are seeking, we're doing the great work, whatever it is that God has called you to in your life, whatever it is, is your initial calling as, as a man, be it a husband, a grandpa, you know, whatever he's called you to in your profession, that's your mission field, but whatever he might have called you to in, in your, you know, uh, ministry and involvement as being a part of the body of Christ, we all have a, a part to play in that. Whatever it is, it's a great work. But the enemy wants to get us distracted. He wants to get us frightened. He wants to get us to think that, that we can't do it, that we can't make it. And so it ends this way. After this great moment, the work is done. The wall is completed. The gates are hung. It's a great time. All right, now we, no, no, no. We have to stay, keep our guard up. 
because the enemy never ever stops. So Father, I pray tonight as these men gather together in their groups, as they talk, as they share, as they compare notes here, Lord, I pray that that you would use these conversations, brothers with brothers, that it would truly be like iron sharpening iron, that these men would be encouraging one another in the Lord. That each one of us tonight could leave this place with a greater sense of reality and knowing that God has called us to a great work. And we could leave this place tonight with a greater sense of knowing that, that, God, you are with us and that we are in this together. So bless this time now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.